0: Welcome to Generation Digital Workforce, the podcast that's here to explore the role of robotic process automation and other digital technologies. Whether you're just getting started or you're looking for advanced strategies and tactics, if you're curious about where human and digital workers are coming together to transform the future of work, then this podcast is for you. All right, let's get into the show.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome this week to Generation Digital Workforce. I'm Zena, coming at you from Austin, Texas, and this week I'm pleased to have with me Rick Wartzman. Rick is the director of the KH Moon Center for a Functioning Society at the Drucker Institute and the author of four books, including his latest, The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. Hi, Rick, welcome to the program.
2: Hey, it's great to be with you.
1: I'm glad you're here. You want to tell our listeners a little about yourself?
2: Sure. Yeah. Thank you again for the opportunity. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm at the Drucker Institute, we're a social enterprise based at Claremont Graduate University. Some would probably call us a think tank, but we do as much action and doing stuff as we do thinking. I always think think tank you envision people sitting around and scratching their chins or things like that. We don't. We don't have time for much of that. We have. Uh, a lot of things that we work on with different organizations across all sectors. So we work with companies, we work with nonprofits, we work with government agencies, and, and very much trying to help them be more effective and, and responsibly managed in, in all they do. And I'm happy to to talk about more of that. And uh, by way of background, I was before I came to the Drucker Institute as the founding executive director, 13. Years ago, I was a journalist for 20 years. So I was at the Wall Street Journal for 15 years as a reporter and editor, and then at the Los Angeles Times as a reporter and and editor, and I've continued to, to write, you know, over the last decade plus from my perch at the Drucker Institute.
1: Yes, that's actually how I found you. I came across an article that you wrote in 2014 that we're going to talk a little bit about in the show today. Mm -hmm. But before we jump there, I'd like to explore your thoughts a little bit about the shift in the workforce as we see it kind of moving in front of us right now. And, you know, this program is about, you know, how we as business people collectively need to think about the workforce and how it's shifting. Mm-hmm. but if we if we want to learn a little bit from you know the past as i know you've done a lot of of studying and you know how that that shifts uh, or shifts us and and helps us look forward technology and automation isn't new shifts from in technology and automation aren't new and the shifts from the analog to the digital world isn't uh, necessarily new either and in your uh, past you've studied and written about peter drucker's research on the rise of the knowledge worker and i'd like you to share some of your thoughts on the trends you've seen impacting this set of workers most recently in let's say the last decade
2: Yeah, so one of the things I think the moment we're in, you know, many organizations are are feeling trends that were already happening or, you know, drifts that were already happening accelerated, right? I think in a lot of ways, many of us feel like, I mean, it's weird, right? We're all hunkered down or many of us who are fortunate enough to be able to work from home and and are still employed and and have the luxury of being safe and and amid a pandemic and, and working from home. In some ways, time has stood still or, you know, you don't even know what day of the week it is anymore. And in another way for, for our organizations, I think, shifts and, and moving online and, uh, you know, digital transformation as people talk about it, all that feels like it's also sped up in a tremendous way. I know the way that I'm, you know, connected now to my colleagues um, digitally um, has only been enhanced because I can't see them physically. And and I'm sure this is true for many organizations. You know, the way we serve our customers has um, is, is been much more of an online or a digital environment, obviously, for folks. And and so I think we're seeing an acceleration of trends there. And in turn, the way that as knowledge workers, we need to be responsible for the information that we generate, who needs to know, right, what we need to know in what form at what time so that they can make decisions. You don't want to be the bottleneck, right, in a virtual organization because, um, you're not not responding effectively and appropriately and in real time. So I think, you know, again, we're we're seeing a lot of things sped up. We're also seeing, though, a, a real divide enhanced. That is, you know, as I alluded to, for those who aren't necessarily knowledge workers, you know, and, and have been now dubbed essential employees in many cases, who have to go into their places of work physically to serve people, you know, whether it's frontline retail workers, uh, grocery workers, you know, those in, a, in an Amazon or a Walmart warehouse, um, you know, school teachers perhaps coming up in, in districts where they they will have school coming back online soon. All of those folks, um, healthcare, you know, professionals, all of those workers who've, who've been exposed in so many ways to the dangers of, of working, you know, during this time of coronavirus, but also I think it's exposed real fault lines in our economy and society, around those who don't get paid very much in any of those frontline jobs, who don't have access to sick leave or healthcare benefits. So a, a lot of things have been laid bare, I think, by by what's happening.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. In your latest book, The End of Loyalty, you chronicle the erosion actually of the relationship between American companies and their workers. You wanna share a little bit about your research and what it tells us about that relationship and how it's changed?
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, the the real arc of the story was um, you know, there was kind of this expectation of really lifelong loyalty between employer and employee in this kind of post-World War II period up through really the early to mid-70s. You know, you worked hard for your employer. And this was folks, you know, in in blue-collar jobs or, you know, white-collar jobs, you were you were taken care of. In many ways, you know, you would you would often work for decades at a time for a, a single employer. You know, you'd have this long tenure and then even when you retired, you know, about half of all workers had guaranteed pension plans that really was, was in some ways the fullest expression of this idea of lifelong loyalty between employer and employee. They, they took care of you for the rest of your life, access to good benefits, ever rising wages. This was a period of the creation of the great middle class in America and the consumer class in America. Wages really did rise right along with productivity through the 40s and 50s and 60s and into the 70s. And then that social contract, if you will, really began to unravel. And there were all kinds of forces that caused it, including the shift to, to knowledge work and the decline of manufacturing, you know, decline of unions and worker voice and power, technology and automation, globalization, all kinds of forces. And then I think one that really accelerated those trends and exacerbated them and exacerbated those pressures was kind of the rise of shareholder primacy and beginning to to put shareholders before all these other stakeholders uh, including employees and that was really the the gasoline on the fire if you will
1: yes agree when uh the uh the return of uh, profits became the number one key performance indicator for corporate success
2: yep and look, companies have always cared about profits, you know and and I, and they should i mean if if you don't care about profits, you're not going to be in business very long uh, and uh you know you're not going to frankly be able to afford to be a good employer or a good neighbor or a good contributor to society or, or a member of your community but i you know from from my study of of what's happened historically and where we are today and the issues we work on at the at the Drucker Institute. You know, it's become clear to me along with many other organizations and allies in this fight against shareholder primacy that there's an inordinate weight that has been put on financial returns and short-term financial returns. Again, often at the expense of other stakeholders that traditionally were better served by corporate America. There's been, as you know, a, a bit of a return to this thinking, not only by, you know, folks who've been pushing on this like myself for a long time, but, you know, most visibly by the Business Roundtable, right, last summer. And their 181 CEO members signed a statement that specifically renounced their previous statement endorsing shareholder primacy, and they've now embraced stakeholder capitalism as a better way to go. And uh, I applaud them for doing so. I think there's, a you know, still a lot to be seen as to how you take that Talk and turn it into the walk but it's good that they've at least taken the first step and acknowledged that that was an issue and and have at least pledged to do better
1: step number 1 so uh, that's a that's a moving in the right direction let's switch gears and talk a little bit about automation which is one of the things that uh, we we talk about here on on the show in bringing out a digital workforce mm-hmm. and automation and the ideas of artificial intelligence and can often be polarizing subjects and you know in some of the research that Drucker did himself he viewed automation you know as a mixed bag um, but he also wrote that technology impacts which the experts predict almost never occur and i think you and i have probably found that to be true in our own careers as well so, how do you think automation is impacting what we're seeing right now going on uh, with the knowledge workers or with, you know, the, the the workforce in general? And is automation having the impact that it should or that it could in helping us to get back to stakeholder capitalism?
2: Yeah, it's a great, I mean, it's a great question. So, I'll I'll take it in those two pieces, I guess. So, in terms of, you know, first of all, AI or automation often, you know, lumped together, although obviously different things. I think nobody's immune. No no job category is immune. And in fact, you know, it's often thought of that the most vulnerable are the most vulnerable when it comes to automation, right? Those on a factory line or, you know, perhaps, right, a checkout person at the, you know, your, your, drugstore who used to be there and now you, you know, check out yourself right through a automated scanner or or whatever. And we've certainly seen a lot of that. I mean you can't look at a factory photograph and, and look at a modern factory now and look at a photograph of a, you know, GM assembly line, you know, from years ago and and they often look quite, quite different just in terms of the number of people packed into a into a plant. And It takes far fewer hands to to produce the stuff that we used to produce from a manufacturing standpoint. So those folks, you know, have have in many ways over a lengthy period of time been disrupted and and seen jobs disappear. Also seen new jobs created, no doubt. But if you're on the losing end of that proposition, that's that's tough. But again, I don't think anybody's immune. Um, There was an interesting study that was done late last year by the Brookings Institution that working with a, actually a Stanford PhD student named Michael Webb, and he looked at the way different job descriptions are, are categorized on O*NET, the government's official occupational database. Looked at the the words they used, and then to describe a job, and then looked at I think more than 16,000 different AI patents and matched the specific words in those patents and found that many white collar occupations are also very vulnerable to ai so no one i think is you know safe in a sense from having their you know job disrupted at least and maybe replaced right many cases i think will be working side by side more with machines and in other cases it may be a wholesale substitution so which sort of gets to the second part of your question which is you know what's it mean in terms of a company's obligation to prepare their workforce for that and sort of deal with that in in a way that makes sense for society and and certainly I think for the economy long term and for their own self-interest long term. And, you know, what we've seen in terms of the erosion of the social contract between employer and employee, many pieces of it have declined over the last 40 years. Again, as as, through a number of reasons and as shareholder primacy has, has taken hold, so, we've seen wages stagnate. We've seen benefits like healthcare and retirement security erode steadily over those four decades. Another area, though, that we've seen decline by and large is employer provided or sponsored training for their workers. There seems to be some change to that, maybe underway. The numbers are very hard to come by. But the best numbers that have been done most recently still suggest an overall decline in training. And there have certainly been indicators in recent years that are not really very encouraging in terms of companies being in a position or willing to train their workers to embrace this new digital future. So to be specific about it, there was a 2018 Accenture survey of um some 1,200 CEOs and other top executives, it found that 75% of them intended at that time to automate tasks to a large or very large extent, but fewer than 3% of those C-suite executives said they would significantly increase investment in training programs to help their workers learn to, to work in tandem with these machines or deal with these machines. So you look at that kind of gulf and you just think, Wow, that's not a very good recipe for those who will be left behind, and that concerns me greatly.
1: That brings up a, an interesting um fact that I remember reading somewhere um and uh, maybe it wasn't a fact even, but it quoted somewhere around um you know that 20% of the jobs that will exist, you know, 10 years from now don't exist today. So how do we prepare for the unknown world. And there's some, you know, automation is right in front of us. So I think it's easy for executives to grasp on to, well, yes, I'm going to be automating because everybody else is automating as well. I, I must be doing this. So you see 75, you know, percent saying that. But training and investing in the future is a little bit more nebulous when you don't exactly know what to prepare people for. What do you think, how do you think these businesses should be thinking about preparing those employees for the future when they're not even sure what those future jobs might be today?
2: First of all, I think that they do have a sense of what the most immediate jobs are like, and and we do see some companies, you know, doing a lot of training. Walmart is actually a good example and historically has, you know, not been seen as a leader in terms of providing for their employees. But they've invested heavily in training and they are under a digital transformation as you know they use even their brick and mortar stores. You write it, you just kind of this blended experience you now can order online and then go pick up at the store. But their employees in turn need to be trained to you know pick out those items quickly, to restock in ways they hadn't before, to know you're in cut, you know parking spot number three, and this is your order and how to load it in your, you know, gather the, the items and load it in your car and all of that. And there, you know, there's all kinds of technology involved in that, and they're training their people accordingly. Verizon is in the midst of retraining. I mean, they've made a conscious decision during the, the pandemic to not lay off workers, but retrain some 20,000 of them so that they're better prepared to serve customers in their stores when when business picks back up, because they have a sense of some of the new technologies and digital systems that are going to be implemented. So I, I think companies do have a sense of certainly what's on the immediate horizon and, and can do a better job. I wish there were, you know, more Walmarts and Verizons out there. And there's some at and ts has done a lot in this area, IBM, Amazon, but but I still think they're probably the exceptions. We, we need a lot more of this. The other thing I would say is that, and Peter Drucker talked about, companies becoming and turning themselves into both Teaching, learning, and teaching organizations. Another really good source on this is um, Deloitte Center for the Edge has done a a, a lot of of lot of work in this area. And it seems to me that what companies need to do is invest in a way. One, their their, their employees pick up a good general skill set of you know certain soft skills and other skills that will be transferable no matter sort of what the specific technology is but that will teach them some fundamental ideas and concepts that will probably translate well, no matter what specific technology or system is is implemented. And then as part of that, maybe the most important thing is is sort of cultivating in in people the habit of learning and cultivating in people this idea of lifelong learning and continuous learning. That's something that I think employers can provide and is more essential than ever.
1: So I'm I'm curious your thoughts on the idea of the gig economy which I've seen a lot of uh, younger technical trades people I'll I'll use that word uh, gravitate towards not really in you know I think it's uh, goes back to a little bit around the the idea of the end of the you know, lifetime relationship between a, a corporation and, and an employee, mm-hmm. uh, but this idea of more of a freelance wh- where you don't really work for corporate America, but you have multiple, you know, quote unquote gigs. Mm-hmm. And I see more of the younger generation sort of gravitating towards that. I'm wondering your, if you're seeing that, your thoughts on it, and if that's an inevitable shift or if you think we'll see a, a reemergence of a loyal list type relationship.
2: Yeah, I do think it's I do think it's a growing trend, although I think it's also one that gets overblown a lot. So sometimes you see numbers by, you know, certain organizations, you know, freelancers or gig workers or whatever that suggest 50% of the workforce is headed toward being, you know, some kind of gig worker. and, and I think those numbers are just way off from all the best studies that I've seen, um, both official government data and work that um, Larry Katz and other economists um, have done, leading economists, you know, that would all suggest that about 15% of the American workforce, at least before the pandemic, I I don't know what it all is now, things are so up up in the air, been thrown up in the air, but about 15% of the workforce was in some form of contingent work, and that's the term that embodies not only, you know, those who are freelancers, but are temp workers, or some kind of contract employee, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so, it's not as big as sometimes the numbers indicate. Those who work for an online platform, right, is even smaller. I mean, it's, it's you know, 1% or, or even a fraction of 1% in terms of the total workforce. So it's, you know, it's not nearly as big as some of the headlines and the numbers would have you indicate, you know, and so I'm thinking of of Uber and Lyft drivers, right, on an online platform. That said, you know, gig work is certainly it is growing over time. It's also become an important kind of backup occupation for people. So, right, people who are employed but then supplement their income. And in many cases, as that main corporate social contract has eroded, people have been able to smooth out their income and increase their income through gig work. So it's become something of a, of a personal safety net. The other thing I would say about it is, and I think this is really, really important, gig work, if you want to call it that, is where we see this divide that that exists in the general labor market as really starkly and there's been some interesting surveying that's been done over many years and and what it essentially finds is is this that if you are somebody who is at kind of the high end of the gig market if you will so i am a freelance tech consultant or i am a you know contract financial analyst or you know something like that and it really is something i want to do it can be great. You have a lot of flexibility. Maybe you have health care through an employed spouse. Your life is pretty sweet. You can be paid well, and again, the flexibility is is fantastic. If you are a contingent worker or a gig worker because um, and you're kind of at the low end because you're a care worker and you're you know get your work through a temp agency all the time, or you're a contract worker because you used to have a job at company X. Ax- but they, you know, got rid of everyone who worked in the cafeteria or the janitor's, you know, staff, and they're now being, they're outsourcing that work and you, you know, get your job that way. You tend to be very low paid, you have no benefits, you have no safety net, and it's terrible. And you see a real split between kind of the gig haves and have nots in that way. It's very, very pronounced.
1: So, how would you suggest we move past the gig economy if um or that we really embrace it in order to make it work for everyone?
2: So, there are efforts underway, which I, I think makes sense that you know, to have things like portable benefits, certainly universal health coverage in this country would help not only gig workers, but you know we have this weird it's really a weird historical artifact that and it's still, you know most people get their health coverage through their employer or their spouse's employer right we have this we have our medical access to medical care tied to employment we're you know a, a, an outlier as a as a nation in in doing that and it and it doesn't make a lot of sense i don't think it makes a lot of sense actually for business either that shoulders all these health care costs and has to deal with all this administration so you know Having whatever whatever form of un, true universal coverage you had, whether it's a you know public option or a single payer system or or you know whatever it is, I think we've got to move towards something like that. But not only for gig workers, just for all the other frontline workers, you know the tens of millions of workers who who have been so left behind over the last 40 years. I think that's essential. And then again, you know, portable benefits. You know, having gig workers the ability maybe to, to organize in some, some way and have more of a collective voice. But again, that's something I'd also say is as essential or, or certainly, or maybe even more essential for those who are employed directly by organizations and have watched private sector union coverage in this country decline from, you know, a height of around 30% in the fifties to 6% or so now and so these are these are things that i think would be good not only for gig workers but all workers
1: definitely I agree so we've ha- been talking about some interesting trends that have been going on uh, recently or maybe even more than recently last you know 20 to to 50ish years. One of the the well the reason I reached out to you was a article you wrote in 2014 that was actually titled What Peter Drucker Knew About 2020 and mm-hmm. I ran across this article on HBR actually just a couple of months ago when when I originally reached out and So it was very interesting to me, you know, written six years ago about what he knew uh, this year. Um, And it it was actually rang very true. Uh, I encourage people to to go out and, and read it. But in there, you know, you said that the increasing productivity of the knowledge workers was the most important contribution management needed to make in the 21st century. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how we're doing um in driving productivity of our workers and what automation or technology in in general's role is in either moving that forward sideways or maybe not moving it as it forward at all
2: yeah it's a great it's a great question so first of all i would I would suggest even though I wrote that piece six years ago, by the way, it was based on Peter Drucker's writings of much earlier, so he was the one who was truly prescient, right, to be able to see the world so far ahead. Yes. He a knowledge worker actually in 1959 in his book Landmarks of Tomorrow, which is really incredible, right, when you think about it, the idea of, you know, he foresaw this of knowledge work and this knowledge age that we would now be very much, you know, in the midst of, he really was incredibly far, far seeing And then again, the ethos was very much around, right, blue collar work and, and the manufacturing worker and the factory. And, and uh, but he he saw this different age coming. And I think his point was that, you know, as he wrote over the years and he spent the next 40 years really writing about what it meant to be in the, in the midst of a knowledge economy and knowledge society. And he saw that when blue collar productivity rose in the factory, that is what ultimately created the, you know, it was the first thing that allowed the the creation of, of the great American middle class and and a growing middle class in many ways around the world because the pie grew, right? As productivity increases, that's what allows people's standards of living to rise, the pie grew. And I think he, he thought that, and, you know, we would need the same thing to happen in a knowledge age with knowledge workers for the pie to continue to grow. My sense is that actually, I don't think growth and productivity is necessarily the problem. There are a lot of economists, as you know, who debate whether we're even good at measuring productivity now, that we miss a lot of things, right? So the famous example or a famous example, some point to is, how do you measure the contribution of productivity of Wikipedia, say, right? Or, you know, or something like that. Or, you know, I myself then feel like I'm way more productive since my office went on Slack. Or, you know, I mean, there are a thousand productivity tools I could point to. I'm not sure any of that is picked up in the productivity data because the output of knowledge workers is so much harder to measure, right, than the productivity out of a factory. So, it's hard stuff to count, and and there has definitely been concern that productivity growth has slowed and and so on, and and so I don't mean to dismiss any of that, and and Robert Gordon from Northwestern has done tremendous work in this area and I, I don't mean to, to downplay the lack of productivity growth, but i'm not sure it's as severe as people make it. What concerns me way more is that to the degree productivity has grown over the last thirty years, again, the pie has grown it 's now the question of how have we as a society, how has corporate America chosen to divide up the pie, and that's what's really changed most dramatically is that you know that equation.
1: Yeah, that equation has gotten a little off. Um, agree.
2: It's actually gotten way off. So I mean, just to be just to be specific about it, right? So from the late '40s, this is this is all data. It's it's a famous chart for you know folks in my circles, right, from the Economic Policy Institute. But it's pretty straight ahead math. You know, productivity from the late '40s to the late '70s grew by. You know, um, this is for uh, Well, I'll explain a sec. So, productivity grew 108% from the late 40s to the late 70s. Compensation, so both um, wages and benefits, total compensation for a typical worker. So, this is about 80% of the American workforce, okay? So, this is production workers or non-supervisory workers in the private sector. So, about 80% of the American workforce. Their compensation grew 93%. 93%. So, roughly speaking, they you know, they tracked, right, productivity up a little over 100%, compensation up over 90%. They just marched in lockstep, which is to say the pie grew and workers shared in that growing pie. They got their cut. From the late 70s to through 2018, the latest data available, productivity didn't grow as much, okay, but it was up about 70% over that period. But total compensation, so this would even include like rising, you know, healthcare costs in there, compensation grew only about 12%. So this is that flat compensation or flat wages, you know, that we've we've seen stagnation in recent decades. Or to put it another way, the pie still grew quite a bit, but even in this knowledge age, maybe not as much as before, but it still grew quite a bit. But workers just didn't get their slice as they did. And if you look at the share of income going to workers, you know, they've gotten less and capital, you know, shareholders have gotten a lot more.
1: So, we've talked about the trends that have driven us there. How do we go in a different direction? You know, we're, we're in this age of digital transformation. I think a lot of the things going on have contributed to the digital transformation, things with the the rise of the knowledge worker, automation, a lot of the the things we've talked about and yet the pie is growing and the share is not businesses are starting to shift as you mentioned at the beginning of our call to having a stakeholder uh, capitalism view so i'm 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 curious what do you think are some critical things that business people today should be thinking about within their businesses of how to make sure that we have uh, worker equality
2: Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. So, um, you know, there's some different things that I I would encourage companies and, and executives to think about. So one is, again, really focusing on training and even, you know, be willing to invest in folks, even at risk of losing them. Right. There's always a thing of like, why should I pay to train somebody and then have him or her just walk out the door and go work for a competitor? I think you need to take a longer view than that and and kind of a broader societal view, which again is, I think, in in a company's own best interest over the long haul. There are also some smart ways to go about it. I've seen some innovative programs where different employers have banded together in, you know, certain regions. There's some stuff, interesting stuff going on in Wisconsin I know around this, I believe, in Michigan in certain communities where they form a collective to train workers um, in their community. So that the costs are shared, and then there's again less risk I mean, if somebody bolts, you know that your competitor's employee or you know others workers in the community have also been similarly trained, and you know everyone's kind of it's a little bit of social insurance, if you will another thing i I really focus on are the metrics that that you track you know what what really matters to you and and there's a whole bunch of ESG metrics that you can track there's a lot though around you know workforce that can be monitored and i would encourage you to make it public and i think the day is coming when this is mandated anyway by by government to make some of these things public you know what is your turnover how does it stack up against your those in your industry is it too high if it's high what does that you know what does that tell you about you know what kind of what kind of culture you have what kind of place it is to work you know i think that there are ways too that then you can tie some of those things to compensation most executives tend to be compensated beyond their salary. If there's some kind of bonus structure or certainly for very senior executives, some kind of stock-based compensation tend to be very much, very heavily weighted or strictly weighted to financial metrics, right? What other things can you be measured on, right? How about how much training you're doing and what the outcomes of those investments are? What about other workforce investments that that you can make and the ROI on that? That you can look at in terms of, of changing your compensation structure. So I, those are a couple ideas that, that I think would help a lot at the corporate level. And then I think government can do a lot, as I said. I mean, there are many big things they can do in terms of enhancing the safety net, which I think needs to happen in terms of health care and, and retirement security and, and other things. Also, in terms of, of trying to make wages stronger through an enhanced earned income tax credit for lower income workers and so on. But I think government can also encourage companies to do more of the right thing. Right now, you know, investments in training are strictly treated as an expense. They're not treated as as an investment in an asset. And so just in the way companies get favorable tax treatment or are able to literally look as a, you know, buying a, a machine as an asset on their books, it should be able to do the same thing in terms of investing in human, you know, in human beings. So I, I think there's a lot of government policy that can help nudge companies the right way.
1: Excellent insights and really appreciate your uh, sharing those with us and appreciate your being on the program today and uh, helping us to take a look at our human workforce, as, you know, we talk a lot about the digital workforce on this program. And I think it's really important to consider, you know, the impacts to our human workforce in the rise of the digital workforce and and how that is, uh, you know, impacting our businesses today. So thank you very much, uh, Rick, for joining me today.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And again, you know, if I'll leave you with one, Peter Drucker quote, which is that um, a healthy business can exist in a sick society. And so, again, I, I think it really is incumbent on executives to, to think about these broader trends and how their own actions and those actions of their company are, are you know creating, a, a, in the a broadest sense, a, a healthier place for all people to be able to, to thrive
1: and, and flourish. Great. Thank you so much. And have a wonderful day. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today and look forward to you joining us on a future episode of Generation Digital Workforce.
0: You've been listening to Generation Digital Workforce. If you want to hear more about RPA, AI, and other cognitive technologies that are shaping the future of work, join us next time as we continue to go deeper on these topics with industry innovators and experts. To make sure you never miss a future episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. And if you've liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. It's one of the best ways to help more people find valuable content for show notes and more info, visit us at blueprism.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.